G'day everyone, Sam here. I'm loving being back with this podcast and it's funny, I it was a very hectic sort of Christmas period and I didn't realise how much I missed it until I got back in the studio and I didn't realise how excited I was, I think, about the year ahead until I've had a bit of a sneak peek about some of the guests that we've got coming up. So uh, without any further ado, let's talk to one of those amazing guests because today we are talking to seven-time world surfing champion. Yes, that's seven. Six world championships back-to-back. I can't even do the back-to-back. There's too many back-to-backs. Back-to-back-to-back-to-back. Six times in a row. It is none other than the incredible, and I can call this person my friend now, so we've spent some time together, Lane Beachley. And the reason I love talking to Lane is she applies the things that made her a successful surfer into all of these wonderful ways that can help all of us, whether we can barely stand up on a surfboard or we're looking to just do better in any facet of our life. I promise you you'll get something out of this chat. You'll be inspired, but you'll also, you'll take some real little gold nuggets away that you can use in no matter what you're uh, striving to achieve this year and beyond. So that's up next. Really excited to share that with you. Then I'm going to unpack a little saying that I'm sure you've heard before. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Where on earth did that come from? What does it mean? Do we agree with it? I'm Sam Wood, this is The Woodlife, let's get into it. Lane Beachley, welcome to The Woodlife. Thank you, Sam. Good to see you. I just could talk to you for 30 minutes about being seven-time world surfing champion, but you were an absolute trailblazer, not just in women's surfing, but I think in women's sport and not just in this country, but on a global scale, I think. But let's talk about the mental side of things, the resilience side of things, and maybe what happened in your childhood or what you put that down to in your life in general. And, And Am I putting words in your mouth? Do you think that was a big contributor to your success in surfing outside of obviously your surfing skills? Like how big is the mental side of things do you think or how big was it for you? Well, Kelly Slater once said to me, Lane, and this was after I'd become I think a five times consecutive world champion, so I'd matched him. So he's probably feeling threatened because I had to go on to win six in a row and he didn't. But he did say to me once, you know, Lane, you're not always the best surfer in the water, but you're the one that has the strongest mental fortitude. I'm like, thanks for the backhanded compliment, Kelly, but I know exactly where you're coming from. So basically, I'd strongly say that to become the best at what you do, especially when you join that elite level, I'd say it becomes like an 80-20 equation. It's like 80% mental and 20% ability. Yeah, so that's strong, 80-20. Yeah, and I think people would have it the wrong way around. Yeah. Perhaps that's just from my perspective is because I didn't have very, I didn't have a deep reservoir of or a deep reserve of strong talent, right? I was, I was tenacious and yeah. I was focused and hardworking and really driven, but my talent wasn't as raw or as deep as someone like Stephanie Gilmore or Kelly Slater. I had to work a whole lot harder at it. And that's because I taught myself how to surf. I taught myself with fundamental flaws in my technique and my approach. I was number two in the world. I couldn't even jump to my feet, which is a massive disadvantage, especially when the waves are hollow or really steep nature. So 
I had to um, learn how to do it all over again. I literally, I was this close to becoming world champion, like an inch away from becoming a world champion. And I went and found a surf coach and he basically said, look, love to work with you, but everything you know, you're going to have to let go of and start again. <laughs> and, and so did you do that or not do that? I did that. Right, you did that. Okay. So where before we get into that crazy change in its, on its own, where <laughs> does this mental fortitude come from? I truly believe that everything that we are now is a result of our childhood. And I look back and reflect on moments of my childhood and we tend to latch on to the negative more so than positive. We will always forget all the good things that we did or felt but we'll definitely be able to hold on to that long-lasting one thing I missed out on or the one wave I didn't catch or the one thing that got away. But I reflect on my childhood with such depth of of, um, compassion and gratitude. There was so much joy and fun in my life. But of course, there was a lot of deep sadness and loss and heartbreak. You know, I was starting with being adopted into a beach loving family with the last name Beachley, become a world champion surfer. I mean, it sounds like a very fortunate twist of fate. But my dad didn't tell me I was adopted till I was eight years of age and that really was what set the wheels in motion for me to start pursuing to become a world champion at anything. I mean, I just had to be the best because the story I'd told myself was I'm not worthy of love because my own mother gave me away. She mustn't have wanted me, so whose love can I be worthy of if my own mother didn't want me? Of course, that's not the truth and that's not the, the real story, especially from my mother's point of view. But that was the, the meaning that I wrapped around the information that my dad gave me as an eight-year-old. And so I decided, well, if I become a world champion, everyone will love me. And when I became a world champion, I realized actually it had nothing to do with becoming a world champion. It had everything to do with self-love and self-compassion and self-care. But I wasn't really wise enough to know or understand that. So the ability to manage my thoughts and become the awareness of them really didn't happen until about the year before I won my first world title. How old were you then? 25. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I must admit also, Sam, that when I reflect on my childhood, I had very clear definitions about who I wanted to be or what I wanted to do or how I wanted to feel. And that made it really easy for me to make decisions that weren't the popular choice. So, for example, as a 15-year-old, I was very committed to becoming a professional surfer and I'd also declared to the world that I was going to become a world champion surfer. So that made it really easy for me to avoid the peer pressure of picking up a cigarette, for example. Mm. Like All my friends smoked but I wanted nothing to do with it because I knew it would impact my lungs. And if I couldn't breathe, I wasn't able to paddle. And if I couldn't paddle fast, then that was going to cost a win or it cost my performance. So having that clear vision around what I wanted to do or how I wanted to contribute or what I wanted to achieve certainly set the parameters or, or established some clear boundaries around how I wanted to feel and what I would do or wouldn't do. So taking drugs, drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, all those things that teenagers feel the pressure to do really wasn't of any significance to me, except I did drink a lot uh, in my late teenage years and that had something to do with the accessibility to it and the culture of alcohol back when I was growing up in the surfing world. So I find it really interesting that at eight years old you made that decision that you want the whole world to love you and to, to do that you need to become world champion. But 
for, for, to go from there, to join the dots from there, to then make all of these incredible discipline decisions about how you train and, you know, what you don't expose yourself to and what you do expose yourself to. I mean, there'd be a lot of people that have similar thoughts in their very, very young years, you know, I'm going to play cricket for Australia or I'm going to do this. I'm going to, but, but then when push comes to shove, they don't necessarily make the right life choices to do that. Do you think, is there somewhere else that that discipline and that strength of character came from? Or do yeah, you just think- I, I also believe that the second part of the puzzle was the people I was surrounded by. Right, so right. I call it my dream team, the people who saw more in me than I saw my, in myself or the people who held me accountable for behaviour that was self-sabotaging, the people who elevated me and celebrated me in my successes but then also consoled me in my defeats, the people who just... Yeah, my dream team, the people who elevated me versus the dream thieves and the life vampires that just love to suck the last life out of me and <laughs> criticise me and doubt me and judge me. I was doing enough of that myself. I didn't need other people to weigh into that um, debate in my mind. So I had to surround myself with really good people and then ask really good questions. I was just super curious and I didn't believe I had all the answers, so then I surrounded myself with world champions because when you surround yourself with experts, you do save yourself a lot of time. And if you have the capacity to ask questions and then they also have the honesty to share their experiences with you, then it shortcuts the struggle. And that's really what enabled me to achieve my goals and um, and then pay it forward by helping others do the same. Was that dream team the same dream team for your whole career or did it, it ebb and flow? It ebbs and flows. Yeah. I bring in experts and then they, you know, they're weaned out of my life as I become more astute and more confident in my ability to figure it out. I mean, confidence doesn't come from achieving something. Confidence actually comes from your belief in your ability to work it out as you go. Mm. So I, I was naturally a confident person because I was given the freedom to explore failure as a kid. I was given the freedom to fail, to make mistakes, to not, I didn't feel the pressure to have all the answers and also win at all, at, at from the moment I, I set the goal, you know, I, I, I was given the freedom to fail and I think that's a really important point because these days kids, once they've shown or showing any sign of talent, they're, they're, you know, they're swept up in this world of sponsorship and endorsements and promotion and then not really don't really have the skill set or the qualifications to even work out how that impacts them thrust out of the world now go succeed be great and then once they're finished they're just spat out of the system and we see that with a lot of athletes especially olympians there's very few athletes that have only have the chance to fulfill their goal every four years i had it every week because i had this series of events that i was able to compete in which gave me the benefit of learning how to lose because learning how to lose taught me how to win. So if we can learn to embrace failure more, it made me realise that the only thing that I feared was actually success. And a lot of people have a fear of failure, which is really easy to identify, but a fear of success is a lot harder to identify. But the way I was able to identify it is that I would do all the right things and keep falling short. And that suggested to me I had to ask myself, what's stopping me from winning? Like what's getting in my way? And I realised I'm getting in my way. So why do I fear success? Well, let's talk about what does success look like to me? Well, successful people, for example, are arrogant and they're obnoxious. They forget where they come from. I don't want to be that. So I had judged success as something that I didn't want. So therefore, 
I sabotaged it when I got really close to achieving it. Once I realized what my judgment of it was and the story that I created around it, I was like, oh, okay. So the whole reason I'm sabotaging myself is because I don't want to be judged as the way I judge others and we become what we judge. So I had to be very careful about that. It's not about the surfing. It's no. it's it's about everything else that is why you are the wonderful person you are. You already said no. it's you know none of it matters unless we realize it's about loving ourselves and having the self-love. It's the freedom to fail. It's you know all of these wonderful life lessons. What about being a female sports person in a male dominated sport yep. which which many females have to encounter there's very few that are on a level pegging i can hardly think of any even off the top of my head here in 2023 which is quite sad where was surfing at when you were at the pinnacle and what challenges did you face and and how i mean being as determined a person as you are what did it sort of do to you to to make sure that even if you didn't see the benefits of, of the hard work that you're putting in behind the scenes that female surfers for the future would benefit as they unequivocally have? So when I joined the tour, it to me it was a place where women didn't value being a woman right. because there was the industry didn't value them, the male counterparts certainly didn't seem to respect them and the governing body was more interested in making sure that the men had all of the conditions and the the sponsorship and the support that they needed. And and the women's tour was literally like a sideshow. And when I joined the tour, I kind of looked around and went, I don't want the women's tour to be like this when I leave it. And it was more of a, it was actually quite a conscious decision that I wanted to leave women surfing in a better place than how I found it. Now, I wasn't very clear about what that vision was, except I wanted women surfing to emulate women's tennis. Hmm. I wanted it to stand on its own two feet. I wanted it to be respected and valued and appreciated. I wanted the women to be able to earn a living from doing what they love since they've dedicated their lives both in and out of the water to being the best in the world at something, yet they were earning a quarter or a third or a half of what men were earning. So can you give any example of what the number one surfer would have been earning versus you at number one, if you don't mind me asking such a personal question? I can honestly say that the one-time men's world champion was earning over three times more than what I was earning when I was a six-times consecutive world champion. Yeah, and they'd, so they'd just become world champion and you're six years and you still won 30% of what they're earning. Isn't it crazy? And I was told that I'm, as a woman... As a woman, I'm well paid, so suck it up, princess. So that was the attitude. Oh, my God. When I think of women surfing. How often do you think of women surfing, Sam? Oh, every day, every day. <laughs> I wake up, I think of women. No, I, I, but, but I, I, I'm a sports nut. Yeah. It is great to see that they're on a level pegging. And, you know, there's still some work to do, I think, with stigmas and other stuff. But, you know, at least they're being paid the same and getting the yeah. same airtime and, you know. But that's what women's surfing was. We announced pay equity in 2018. 2018, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it really is remarkable. I mean, way back when, when you started surfing, I can only assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that most of the surfers out there at your local break where you were just learning to surf were men or boys. Yep. 99% of them? 99%, okay. What was it like sort of coming up sort of through the ranks and, and trying to fight those boys for those waves at your local break as a teenager? 
So when I was um, growing up in Manly, I refer to Manly kind of like a high school because you graduate your way along the beach. So year seven is right there in the southern corner at Manly and that's where I learned to surf on my foamy as a four-year-old. I was paddling out the back on my own by the time I was five and oh running God. people over the flags when oh I was nine God, or five ten. Five years old. I have a five-year-old. I'm just I'm, oh, who I'm, who I'm teaching who's becoming a very good swimmer but standing up and being out the back of man is a fair way from doing a lap of our pool at home. So that's just <laughs> be- beautiful to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was doing laps in the backyard pool also but standing on my board in my school uniform. So year seven and eight were my comfort zones. It's where I found my tribe. It's where I felt comfortable. It's where I honed my skill and built up my confidence. And then I decided that I needed to start progressing because on my foamy, I became a little bit too complacent. I felt like I wasn't growing. And the only sign of life is growth. So you just need to keep moving. The thing is that stops us from growing is fear, fear of the uncertainty or fear of the unknown or fear of looking stupid. But Like I said, my fear was more of success than it was of failure. So my desire to succeed far outweighed my failure or my fear of failure. When I graduated to year nine, so I moved up to the middle of the beach, kind of like that mid-stain section because it basically goes south stain, mid-stain, north stain, Queenscliff. We're very creative in Manly. I left south stain and mid-stain, kind of was encroaching upon north stain and that's when I graduated onto a fiberglass surfboard I found a whole new tribe of guys to surf with and hang out with and they became my they became my group we were a very strong tight unit there was about 14 of us I was the only girl and we had a ball surfing with each other and just we were just each other's support network they were my dream team and whenever I encroached upon the northern end of the beach so heading towards Northstone and Queenscliff because I had been very confident and vocal in my declaration of wanting to be a world champion, they were very quick to silence me. And so they would paddle up to me and push, push me off my board <laughs> yeah. or splash water in my face or grab my leash to try and stop me from catching waves or try and just do whatever they could to intimidate me and threaten me. That experience taught me one vital lesson, which I still carry with me today, especially when I'm walking into boardrooms when I'm the only female in the all-male boardroom. Find your allies. You don't need a lot of allies. You just need one, a you know, minimum of one. Because for every one of the guys that gave me a hard time out in the water, my allies would either defend me, support me, or distract me. So if they were, if the boys were giving me a hard time and my allies could see that I was crumbling under the, the weight of the, of the, well, the shame or the heartache that I was experiencing, they would defend me and speak up for me. Or if I'd done something, you know, I did a really great turn, they would celebrate me and support me. Or if they could see I was in a bit of a negative rut, they would distract me and try to take me away from it. So the, they were my dream team, these guys. These, mm. these were my allies who had the, the confidence in me to celebrate me and, and elevate me. So I'm grateful for my dream thieves because they taught me the importance of focusing my attention on what I do want versus what I don't want. And if we keep allowing the dream thieves of our lives to dictate the quality of our lives to us, then we'll become victims of circumstance. And I didn't become a victim because it was. it's very easy to be victimised. It's very easy to say, oh, poor me, and it's everyone else's fault. It's a lot harder to sit in it and go, this sucks, but what am I going to do about it? And that's what I chose to do. Yeah, dream thieves. It's a term I've never heard before, but I do love it. And I, you know, you can't help but reflect on your own life and certain people that perhaps were part of your life for a long period of time and 
as you try and grow, as you say, sometimes they aren't a part of that story because yeah. they're, they're not going to celebrate yeah. your growth. They're going to hold you back. It's, and I'm sure every one of our listeners can relate and has one or two people that pop into their mind. It wasn't just the men that were dream thieves. You know, the women, no. when I joined the tour, were dream thieves as well. Yeah. So, you know, when we have these things called, you know, International Women's Day and Male Champions of Change, it's everyone's responsibility to show each other compassion and empathy. Yeah. It's everyone's responsibility to take the time to understand another person. I feel we judge what we don't understand and we fear what we don't know. So we are immediately sizing everything up to determine how we fit into it, whether we're better or superior or inferior. How can we make ourselves feel more comfortable? If we can just learn how to lean into discomfort and then self analyze why we feel that way and start taking responsibility for that, then we'll become more empowered. But we disempower ourselves when we put all of the conditions of our lives outside of us. And ultimately, it's our decisions that determine our happiness, determine our quality of life, that determine everything. I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> I love where that went. No, I, re I really am. I want to finish with you on a, on a happy note and just Tell me and our listeners yes. a little bit more about your Awake Academy and, oh, and what, what that's all about and what you want to do with it. Sure. So Awake Academy is a centre for self-empowerment. It's a, it's a place where we're cultivating connection, growth and happiness in humanity and we really want to help people wake up. That's all we want to do. Yeah. And I built a, the, the platform houses online courses and the first course is called Own Your Truth. And Own Your Truth is essentially my toolkit that's helped me become successful both in sport and in life. So I aim to shortcut the struggle. If we keep focusing on the negative, we're giving our attention and our energy and our power away to everything outside of us. Yep. Being more confident in who we are, being more centred in who we, who we or how we want to feel and more connected with who we want to be helps empower us to become the best versions of us. Yeah, I love it. I mean, we had a bit of a chat about it when we caught yeah. up and I know you're just scratching the surface to what it's going to become, but the content and the ideas that are already there, I think are really, really helpful for people. And on that note, Lane, we'll leave you. Thanks so much for your time. Everybody check out awakeacademy.com.au and uh, just keep being you, mate, and I'll see you soon. You too. Thanks, Sam. What a legend. Legend of sport, not just in Australia, but worldwide. And just a legend of a person. And I think I think when you can chat to someone and the person is bigger than the sporting hero that you have in your head, you know that that's a pretty special person. We're gonna uh, we're gonna change tact a little bit. We're gonna talk about one of those sayings that I'm sure you've definitely said at least once in your life. And I'll be interested to know, do you actually agree with it or is it just something that you say? So a little bit of a different finish to the show today. I was chatting with my wonderful producer, Indy, about all of the wacky health-related sayings that we have in our vernacular and sort of where did they come from? Are they true? Because the one that we were sort of talking about as an example is an apple a day keeps the doctor away, which I'm sure you've all heard it, but where does it come from? What does it mean? And I guess, is it true? So so it originated in the 1800s from a proverb, and bear with me, it's getting a bit Shakespearean, but here we go. Eat an apple on going to bed 
and you'll keep the doctor from earning his bread, which I quite like. I quite, you know, and I, I get, I get the point. It's got the same point there. So I wanted to find out whether there's any truth behind it. So I did a bit of research. So apples are four and a half grams of fiber. They're full of vitamin C, potassium, vitamin K. They're a great source of antioxidants and they do help us fight against disease. So there's no, there's no issues with apples get a big tick. So it's like anything, you you kind of look for something and you can find it if you look hard enough. But there have been research studies to show that there's a link between frequent consumption of apples and a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. I will say the asterisk next to that is this study was a little bit skewed because apples may have been the most, most consumed fruit, but they couldn't necessarily determine between apples and other fruit and vegetables. So typically the people that were healthier and had less risk of cardiovascular disease were eating a lot of fruit and vegetables more than other people. So it wasn't, wasn't just apples necessarily. But then there was another study that we found from 2011 that found common consumption of white flesh fruit, so an apple and vegetables, could protect against stroke. Then, and this is where it gets interesting, in 2015, I found there was an actual study on the apple a day doctor away. So 9,000 adults were surveyed, of which 9% were daily apple eaters, the rest were not. And the study measured that the, inverted commas, the doctor away meant they had not seen their doctor in 12 months. So that was the definition that they used about keeping the doctor away. And drumroll, they found that there was not much of a difference between daily, not a significant difference, I guess that means in the stats, between daily apple eaters and non-daily apple eaters. But that makes sense to me. I guess the point here is twofold. One, we know apples get a big tick, but if you eat an apple each day and then you don't move your body and the rest of your diet's pretty rubbish, it's not going to win the battle of having a you know balanced exercise and nutrition on a daily basis. But two, these proverbs come from a good place. You know, the message here, as we pass it on from generation to generation, and I'm sure I've probably said this saying to my kids at some point in time, and if I haven't, I'm sure I will, is fruit and vegetables and fresh produce is good for us. And if it's just a simple little rhyme or proverb like that, that they that sits with them and they remember it and encourages them to eat good fruit and veg, then that can only be a good thing. But getting back to our little proverb, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. I say we keep saying it. I say we keep eating our apples. So there you go. From meeting Lane Beachley in my little trip to the Apple Isle last year and then being able to chat to her today to talking apples. We've gone Apple Isle to apples. We've done full, full circle. I hope you enjoyed our little chat today. As always, we'd love to hear from you with any questions you've got around food, fitness, health, or any guests that you'd love for me to talk to on the show. I'll see you next week. Have a great week.